Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, journalist Caleb Gale talks about his new book, We Refuse to Forget, a true story of Black Creek's American identity and power. It examines a complicated racial history of the indigenous Creek nation. Also, we recently kicked off a series where we hope to talk to all Atlanta City Council members. They will be invited on the program to talk about their top priorities for the neighborhoods they represent. We began with District 4 Councilman Jason Dozier. You'll hear a rebroadcast of that in just a moment. Those conversations are coming up, but first this. Text messages first obtained by the Atlanta Journal Constitution show that Republican Public Service Commissioners knew the address of a Democratic challenger who was then removed during redistricting. Susanna Capaluto reports the findings could be key in an ongoing lawsuit. When Republicans redrew the lines for the Public Service Commission, Democrat Patty Durant was suddenly no longer in District 2, where she was challenging longtime Republican Tim Eccles. Text messages between Eccles and the PSC's Republican chairwoman, Trisha Pridemore, make it clear that they wanted Durant's home address. At the time, Pridemore was negotiating new district lines with the Republican legislature. Durant's lawyer, Brian Seltz, says the text messages make it clear that Republicans intentionally drew Durant out of the district. Pridemore wanted Patty Durant's home address so that she could ensure that Durand would not be in the district. That's the smoking gun that shows that Pridemore was targeting Durand. Pridemore is not commenting, citing the legal challenge. Durand remained on the ballot for last month's primaries after a judge intervened, but her eligibility to run in November is still being challenged in court. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. In other news, state officials say they are suspending the permitting process that would have made for a massive titanium mine near the Okefenokee Swamp. Now, the proposal by the company called Twin Pines Minerals would have affected nearly 400 acres of wetlands, as we hear from Lily Oppenheimer. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers initially said federal oversight was not necessary to construct the mine, but this week reversed that decision. That's because the land used to belong to the Muscogee Creek Nation, and federal preservation laws still required the agency to consult with the tribe over plans for the mine. Now the Georgia Department of Environmental Resources says it's halting the mine's state permits, while federal approvals are pending. The Okefenokee Swamp is one of the largest remaining intact freshwater ecosystems in the world. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr is hiring a Fulton County prosecutor to lead the state's new gang prosecution unit. Carr announcing yesterday that Fulton County Deputy District Attorney Cara Convery will run the unit when it starts operating July 1st. Now, under a new law signed by Governor Brian Kemp, the attorney general's office will have the same authority as local prosecutors to bring gang cases. The state plans to dedicate $1.6 million to the unit and the budget beginning July 1st. And the board of the Atlanta Regional Commission is set to spend $45 million from the federal infrastructure plan on mass transit in several counties, including adding alternative fuel vehicles, as we hear from Emil Moffitt. The money comes from the $1.2 trillion package signed by President Joe Biden last November. The Regional Commission says $12 million will go from MARTA to buy 22 compressed natural gas buses. Another $11.9 million will go for local transit agencies to buy electric vehicles and install EV charging stations. Coblink will receive $11.5 million to make its transit system more accessible, including upgrades to sidewalks and crosswalks. A little over $9.5 million will be allocated to upgrade the Clayton County Transit Center's waiting areas and restrooms. 
The federal dollars for these projects will be supplemented by $13 million in required local matching funds. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. And finally, the playoffs are here. Yes, our professional rugby team, Rugby ATL, well, they won last week's game against Nola Gold and is headed to a playoff game at Silverbacks Park this Saturday against Rugby United New York. So let's bring in once again head coach Steve Brett. Coach, welcome back. Hey, Rose. Good to talk to you again. How are you? Doing good. Would you say that being on this show was good luck? And that's what... (laughs) Hey, if you want to bring me every week so we can talk to each other and... Get the, get the win, I'll do it every single weekend. Yeah, let's talk about this because for our listeners not familiar with the playoff structure, is it a series or a single game elimination? So it's a series. So we play uh, the third place team who's New York uh, this weekend. Um, and then the winner of that plays the number one, uh, the New England Free Jacks in Boston the weekend after. And then whoever wins that game plays the winner of the Western Conference. Um, uh, and then that's, that's, the, that's the conference finals. And that's why home field advantage is sort of important here because you all needed to win that. Although you were a lock for the playoffs, but you needed to win this last game. Yes, exactly. So we needed to win with uh, with five points just to secure the home final, uh, which the boys went out and done. So, you know, having the home final is always, is always an advantage. Um, so if we can get it, we'll take it. Hey, if you can get it, you can take it. Let's talk about strategy here because I asked you last time, you know, when you're heading into the playoffs, do you change anything? Do you modify your game plan? I think you told me, you know what, we work with what's been working. We had a very good season, regular season. We're not going to change too much. You're not going to overthink because I've heard coaches tell me sometimes, Rose, head coaches overthink going into the playoffs. Yeah, obviously this has been one of the hardest team selections I've had to make. Uh, all my All our boys are up for selection. Uh, which is the first for for a few weeks. So it's definitely a hard process to go through the team selection. But, you know, like I said, we, we will stick to what we know, what we're good at, um, and that's playing, that's playing territory and, and, and keeping the ball in hand. Uh, but, you know, obviously the big thing for us is obviously getting that, getting that support there for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what we'd like to do at Atlanta Rugby is, is uh, we've got a code that we want to give to NPR and all, all its guest listeners is, <laughs> Code is going to be NPR22. Uh, all you got to do is go to rugbyatl.com, uh, put that code in, and you guys get two free tickets. So look, you have included NPR and WABE in your in, in your your marketing promotion. Didn't even tell me, Coach. Hey, do you know what, Rose? I'm going to invite you two to come to the VIP tent with us. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be rooting for you. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to know what's happening. I, I kind of will know what's happening. So I'm going to be leading the team. I will be there. But I want to go back to something that you said. You said the selection. Are you allowed to carry the same number of players on your roster in the playoffs during the regular season? Or any, are there any stipulations here? No, there's no stipulations. It's the same rules as as your normal as your normal season. So we're allowed we're allowed uh, ten eleven foreigners uh, per game plus our twenty three match match day squad, um, and then obviously we're allowed two players to come and warm up with us if if need be. Rugby United New York. This how would you describe their style of play? And I know you don't want to give two away, give too much away, but what is the game plan here? Uh, they're, they're, Besides they're, winning, of course. Oh, obviously, but they're they're a good side. Uh, we played them in the finals last year, uh, so they've they've been in this they've been in this uh, situation before. Um, they're, they're a physical physical team, um, so you know we're we're up for the physical battle. Uh, but obviously, like I said, like the, the more support we can get there, the better. And just trying really trying to obviously going going for that conference final. You know, hopefully we get the conference final. So. Mm-hmm. Having the having the Braves win their conference, uh, then it'd be awesome to have have us win the, win win our conference as well. So absolutely, two- absolutely. Yeah, we we years ago we came a little bit close with the Falcons, but then some guy named Tom Brady just messed it all up. Um, <laughs> the Braves, of course, have their championships. The Atlanta Dream have played in championships and they've lost, but we're hoping they will have a really good season too. You all have an opportunity to bring another professional championship. To the Atlanta area, there's no pressure on you, coach. No, no pressure at all. That's that's just part and parcel of being, you know, a professional team in 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 a, in a city. You know, so obviously there would be that's our that's our dream for the city is to come bring a championship into this another championship into the city. So we just got to go out there and the more support that we can get uh, in our in our stadium at the Silverbacks Park there, eight thirty on Saturday. Yeah, the better for us. Let me ask you this: Do you have to do much in terms of motivating? 
as a coach at this point, you know, you call them, you call them your boys, but do you have to just reiterate, you know, it, it's, it's, we've been here before, we know this team, but what do you do? Are you doing anything extra as a coach? Because now it is uh, the playoffs. It is exactly. So I've got a sports site coming in this afternoon to speak with the boys, just to go through the mentality of uh, playoffs. Um, so that's going to be, that's going to be good for the boys. Just, just to really sink in what, it, what the atmosphere is going to be like. The game's going to go really fast. So you've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to play each moment as it comes. Um, so at the end of the game, if you, if you haven't done what you wanted to do, then, you know, you, you're not going to get the results that you want to get. Let me ask you, are you going to bring in a sports psychologist to talk to the team? Yes. Yep. We are. Yep. Have you, did you, when you were someone emailing me, take me Rose, look, y'all, <laughs> look what you started coach. Um, <laughs> did, did Was that something that uh, coaches did for you when you were on, playing professionally? Is that common? Yes, definitely is. Yep. Especially in professional rugby in New Zealand, uh, there's a lot of sports. Uh, most teams will have a, a sports psych with them uh, throughout the whole year. Uh, unfortunately, we don't we we can't we don't really have that privilege here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've, we've got in contact with a sports psych in New Zealand who will do a Zoom with our players, and he's done one before um, a few weeks back, which which really helped the boys. It's just it's just a different voice mm-hmm. rather than mine. Um, so he gets the point across the same way that I would like to get the point across, just but I like as I said, just with a different voice. And we should note, I, I didn't want to leave out Atlanta United. They obviously brought a MLS championship here too, because you know I get all kinds of emails. Coach, before I let you go, you talked about the importance of having so many fans out there, but then there is that pressure because you are, you know, you may have the biggest attendance just because Rose Scott's going to be there you may have the biggest attendance so far this season is it a little bit how do you get your, your boys as you call them to focus don't get caught up I and mean, you want to thrive off the, the, the crowd there but you want them to stay focused um like that's just that's that's the environment that we train them in we go we when we train we go through scenarios on the field um Sometimes we'll play music, so they listen to music, so so they focus on the on what we what we're actually trying to get out of the out of our plays. So they've been through all this stuff before, um, but yeah, like the more supporters, the better for us. Now I'm curious, what is the hype song for rugby ATL? What what gets the the, the boys, as you call them, what gets them going? Uh, so the boys will play a lot of music pre-game uh, that'll get them going, and then we've got a what they call uh, the twister which they do before game uh, where they bunch up in a, in a circle and they go around like a twister um, and, and say the, the few words that they want to do. Um, and it just gets them up, just a little bit of motivation that they, that they do as players. That's what's up. And again, coach, for our listeners, because you just mentioned if they go online and again, folks, this, I had no idea this was coming. They go online and they do what? And they get free tickets. Yeah, so if they go to www.rugbyatl.com, they go into the tickets sales, they put in the code APR22, uh, they will receive... APR or NPR? APR. Okay, APR. NPR, uh, sorry, NPR. Okay, put in the code NPR22 and they get two free tickets? Yep, and get two free tickets to the game. All right, is there is there anything in terms of etiquette that our our listeners should know that they shouldn't do or you want them to do like do you, do they do the wave at these games i don't know you know yeah they could we could do the mexican wave but that's the thing with we need the mexican wave we need the we need all the people in the stands so the more people we you guys can bring along rose the better all right we'll be there to cheer you on head coach steve brett rugby atl playoff game this weekend at silverbacks park against rugby united new york it's they win they keep winning and who knows perhaps a championship coach looking forward to seeing you i won't say anything to you prior to the game i'll wait till it's over but best of luck to you and we'll see you saturday thank you rose i'll see you on saturday night all right take care thank you bye Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cf.com.
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta continues. I'm Rose Scott. Y'all stop emailing me. You heard what the man said. The tickets are free. Just <laughs> I'll be there. We'll all be there. Now, coming up on tomorrow's Closer Look, Atlanta City Council Member Liliana Bakhtiari will be our guest. It's part of our attempt to speak with every Atlanta City Council representative. As you know, in Atlanta, there are 234 neighborhoods represented on City Council via 12 districts and three citywide posts. And we're going to find out the top priorities of each district by speaking with these council members. So we started this series actually last week with Jason Dozer, who represents District 4. Councilman, welcome. Thank you so much, Rose. Thanks for having me. Did you know there were 242 neighborhoods in Atlanta? I did, and I think I'm one of the very few people that actually know that. <laughs> for our listeners who may not know, District 4, I, I mentioned some earlier uh, in the program, like Me- Me- Mechanicsville and Ashview. Ashview Heights. I-, I like to describe Mechanicsville as central southwest Atlanta, so everything from Five Points to Port McPherson, with some caveats. So uh, the Coca-Cola Bill is in District 4, okay. as is Venetian Hills and West End and Atlanta University Center. And I, just, I tell people some of Atlanta's most historic communities, but mm-hmm. also uh, some of Atlanta's most vulnerable communities. As we see all the transition that's been happening. Mm-hmm. I know with the conversation with the mayor a couple of days ago, you talked about Westview and mm-hmm. West End and some of the property values that have been being experienced there. A lot of transition. The, the, overall, the map, it's a little weird in terms of how the districts are trying. They're going to be redrawn here yep. not too yep. far in the future. Do you like that that whole idea of it being redrawn, or would you like for it to? I mean, I, I get the – well. Firstly, I will say, I mean, it's something we do every 10 years yeah. is, is driven by the census and Atlanta's population has changed a lot in the last 10 years. Some of our city council districts are going to get a lot smaller. I know District 2, I think, has to lose about 11,000 people. That's a lot. That's a lot. And, and District 5, I'm sorry, my district is District 4, but District 12 and 11 and 10 have to gain people. So you're going to see a lot of shifts northward from a lot of these southwest Atlanta districts that have to gain population so they were all balanced out and equal. As of right now, your District 4 has about 38,000 maybe? About, yeah. Uh, closer to 42. But 42? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a lot of, of communities that um, I think, in my opinion, have defined Atlanta and what it is and what it is today. When you think about where the history of Atlanta began with the Gulch in that location, that's mm-hmm. in District 4. But you also have our educational institutions and just so many parts of our city are defined by, that district, by our district. And I, I'm really proud to represent it. When you look at the 2020 census and the demographics there, I mean, Councilman, you look, 68% of homes are renter-occupied. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that. 32% are owner-occupied. Medium household income, 35000 mm-hmm. Medium home value, 226000 As you look at this, and you mentioned the changing demographics and all those tentacles tied to that, we know why you ran, because I, full disclosure, I, I moderated a debate, but what concerns do you have for your district that you hope in the time, and it could be a long time, it could be a short time, that you really want to address. Yeah, and I really appreciate you framing that, just that demographic, uh, just breakdown of of our communities. We have a lot of people who rent. I know 68% across the city, but in District 4, you have some neighborhoods. My neighborhood, Mechanicsville, is 80% renter. You have some neighborhoods that are surrounding, not necessarily in our district, but I know in Eagles Avenue and Vine City, 90% renter. A lot of folks are in apartments. Some folks are in old housing projects that have been converted to multi or mixed use or Mm -hmm. mixed income projects. Uh, You have folks renting single family homes. And unfortunately, a lot of our protections for legacy residents in this city are centered around homeowners. And how do we we think about the grandma or the great grandma who has raised her kids and grandkids and how do they stay in their home and protect that wealth? That's a very big and important part of who we are as a city. And we need to protect that. But we also need to protect our renters as well. And that's where I'm looking to find some additional opportunities. You heard the interview we did with the mayor um, and even in. The previous administration, that previous administration, that previous administration, everyone has talked about affordable housing being one, obviously one of the top priorities. Based on now with Mayor Dickens' administration, are you a little bit more optimistic in terms of all these units that are going to come online? Everyone agrees, Councilman, that it's probably not enough mm-hmm. in terms of affordable housing. You you feel like you all, 
it's not too late? I, and I'm an optimist. Otherwise, I wouldn't have run for office. And, and I think that uh, there are opportunities. I know what the mayor's goal is, and I think that we can do a lot more. But I think that we need to uh, work with our private market to, to get us to that goal. I know we had some conversations last year around density and how can we have density that makes sense in communities that uh, you know are historically single-family communities. But uh, I always push back with folks and remind them, you know, in West End, uh, you know, when you look at the 1970 census, 20,000 residents in West End. Today's only 5,000. So some of that naturally occurring density that we had, we bulldozed it for highways. We bulldozed it for shopping plazas. But also, you know, we've converted duplexes into single-family homes. We've converted four-unit apartment buildings into single-family homes. And we don't have a legal mechanism in place today to convert that back to allow for that greater density. And that's some of the policies I think can help and include or help support the subsidized housing policies that the mayor is pushing. What are those... I guess, staples in your district that you, I mean, I know parts of the AUC, if not all, are in your district, correct? Mm-hmm. And at the, and Mall West End, yours? Or yes, not? yes. So two iconic areas in a sense. Uh, and the strength, obviously, of the AUC. Absolutely. I mean, to have those HBCUs there and the work they do in the community. But then when we talk about economic development and the jobs and jobs for people who work and live in the community, how do you see that? I mean, and, and the Mall West End's a big part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is where I've had a lot of phenomenal conversations with Invest Atlanta and WorkSource Atlanta specifically in trying to figure out ways in which this, the city can support their efforts to train Atlantans, to get Atlantans hired into companies that are coming to Atlanta. Microsoft's coming, and we want to make sure that we can get Atlantans hired into those good-paying jobs. We know that other companies are looking to expand here, uh, or even with the city of Atlanta. We, we should be a leader on that front and hire from within and have a, a a pipeline and a partnership with our schools so that young kids who are graduating can go work for the city. And so I think there's a lot of there's ways that which we can partner with corporations and with the public sector that we haven't fully uh, figured out quite yet. But those are some of the conversations we're having and the partnerships we're trying to build out right now. Workforce development. Is that a lot? And I imagine maybe public safety or those to and, and affordable housing at the top three you hear from your constituents that and transportation how do we, how do people get around safely and I remind people a lot of times that you know even though uh, a lot of our residents in South even though you don't see a ton of bus stops and see a ton of uh, bus shelters in some of our communities in Southwest Atlanta we have the highest percentage of residents who don't own a car who don't have access to a car and and, and have the greatest need to get around safely but the infrastructure isn't there and so trying to make sure that we get better bus stops, safer bus stops, so it's not just a pole in the dirt and someone can ride the bus with dignity so that we can repave our streets. So uh, I, as a pedestrian taking my kid over to Tuskegee Airman Global Academy, I don't have to worry about cars trying to dodge potholes, let alone not paying attention to pedestrians. So it's, it's all related, and we got to make sure that we're investing in that as well. Well, uh, voters just approved $750 million, so how much is your cut <laughs> for your district? <laughs> well, every district got uh, what they call horizontal funding, so to support recreation centers and things like that, $1.5 million. Another, I'm sorry, that's vertical funding. Another $1.5 million for horizontal funding, so sidewalks and street repair. But one of the things that, and I campaigned on this, uh, District 4 still has renew funds. If you remember, we voted for the Renew Atlanta bond back in, uh, or TSPOS 1.0, maybe seven, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. And we still have funding available for that. And we're using that to, I mean, I'm, I've been an inflation hog in every me- committee meeting that I've had and concerned about the value of these projects going forward. And so I'm trying to spend that fund down so we can focus on these new tranche of monies that we have. So speed tables and flashing beacons and sidewalk repairs. I'm trying to get that done so that we can focus on the future. You recently sponsored a resolution calling on Amtrak to restore passenger service to a more essential part of the city in your district, too. Why was this so important? So I think just with the timing, it, it was important to say and, and be full-throated as a city to say we want Amtrak expansion in the city of Atlanta. We want passenger rail expansion. Uh, last year, Amtrak announced this Connect Us plan that uh, envisioned potential connection to Macon and Savannah and Nashville and, and Charlotte from the city of Atlanta. What we haven't heard is a, a, a continued commitment and continued focus, at least in the public forum. And we're trying to make sure that that happens. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of different stakeholders, folks who are, are involved with the Department of Transportation, folks who are involved with CIM. And I think at the end of the day, uh, folks are wanting 
to see an expansion, but we need Amtrak at the table to have a conversation on what that could potentially look like. You've got some, as we call you, you're getting some love via email. Yeah, he ain't been there a whole year. <laughs> but someone says, let's applaud Councilmember Dozier's <laughs> foresight. Uh, but this person says, rail is key to sustainable growth and progress in Atlanta and the whole of the Southeast. Is that what you're talking about? That exactly what I'm talking about, and especially as we have uh, goals. Climate change is real, y'all. And, you know, while I love being able to visit uh, family in Oregon and, and going across country, we need ways to get around that is more climate friendly, is more cost effective for families. So if I'm visiting other family in Savannah or Na- Nashville, I shouldn't have to get on the plane to do that. And, you know, I, I, I have a car today, but I've gone without a car for five years in this city. And I imagine other families who are trying to make that calculation, gas is expensive. So finding additional opportunities to get people around, not only efficiently and effectively, but safely and cost effectively, I think is the way of the future. And I, I want to see the city of Atlanta support that vision so that we can all work together to get to that point. Well, and the other issue, of course, for any neighborhood is public safety. Uh, what are you wanting in the next chief for Atlanta? I want a chief that is is focused on, uh, you know, changing the the culture of policing in this city. One that is focused on getting officers out of their cars and and walking in neighborhoods and talking to residents and building relationships. And you know, I served as a platoon leader in in Iraq, and I know how different that experience is when you're out of your truck and you you take off your helmet and you talk. I talked to myself to read and write Arabic because I thought it would help me build rapport with the people I was trying to protect. And I think getting officers out of their cars and and walking these communities in ways like we used to, I think will go so far. You, You miss so much when you're driving. When you're walking, when you're on a bicycle, you understand the community in, in a much more intimate way than you might when you're behind a steering wheel. How would you describe the the citizens in District 4? Are you looking more to, are we seeing more of progressives, uh, young adults, millennials, Generation Z? Don't get me started on Generation <laughs> Z because I just do not understand them. I love them dearly, but every day I do something wrong. So, hey, but no, that's what you love, though. But are you seeing some shift in terms of, you know, who's moving into District 4? And, and, and does, does that also lend itself to that? It'll be helpful for the city to recognize the changing demographics of these neighborhoods, and that helps in policy that yeah. they come up with. And I'll say, too, just this, all of the above is a quick answer to that. Uh, just the longer answer is District 4 is a diverse district, not only in terms of the, the racial and gender demographics, but age, uh, the types of housing. Like I said, we have the plurality of downtown Atlanta. That's why I serve on the Atlanta Downtown Improvement District Board. We have a, a good part of downtown Atlanta, but we also have suburban-type communities like in Venetian Hills and West mm-hmm. End uh, and Oakland City. And those priorities are very different. And they're very different now within communities between renters and homeowners, between folks who are legacy and been there for 20, 30, 40 years, and folks who are new. Even if there's commonality with race and gender, those other demographic profiles can create some different needs or different interests. Is it time to really look at single-family zoning in terms of the good, the bad, the ugly? I mean, depending on whom you ask, you get a different answer as mm-hmm. to the effectiveness of it. What do you think? I think it's time to, to look at our zoning in, in, in aggregate. Uh, single-family zoning is part of that. And I think that, um, you know, we have a housing shortage in this city. I think there's ways to get density in our communities that doesn't disrupt neighborhood character, which is where people get the most concern. Mm-hmm. A duplex isn't going to disrupt neighborhood character. A triplex isn't going to disrupt neighborhood character. And there are examples of density being built out in single-family communities that had the support of neighbors and MPUs, and that density fits right in. A new project was approved by West End just last year uh, that is going to add eight, eight unit apartment building that fits and conforms with the, the, the zoning requirements there. There's other great examples of that happening across the city, and I think that as a city, we should support those and highlight how important it is to to continue to have those conversations because mm-hmm. I think the lack of conversations and the communication gap really is what pushed back on the legislation that was debated last year but there's just other ways to get to that point that I think that we maybe have missed the mark on but I want to continue to move us in that direction and finally it's only been what five six months something like that but um what's been your biggest takeaway for you or something unexpected that you learn or you're learning yeah um well I think that, um, well, I think, I, I joke that um, I, I'm the city council member that got all the homework, all the extra assignments. Um, so by virtue of being a District 4 uh, representative, I serve on the West End Community Improvement District Board. I serve on the Atlanta Downtown Improvement District Board. And I serve on the National Center for Civil and Human Rights Board. 
but also because I'm the, the Community Development Human Services Committee Chair, I serve on the Invest Atlanta Board and the Atlanta Beltline Board. So that's, and then of course all those boards have their subcommittees. So there's a lot of board work that I'm working on, but what's been awesome is being able to be a voice in those spaces where even though I campaign about certain issues focused specifically on District 4, I'm able to have conversations and, and, and help shape policy that impacts the whole city. And so I'm really thankful for that opportunity to be able to do that. I will say too, um, you know, with the relationships that I've built, uh, being able to leverage those relationships to, to get even better, bigger and better things for the district, I think has been just so remarkable. Just going back to the Weston example, mm -hmm. you know, Weston Mall is actively being redeveloped yeah. and just the relationship. Well, well it, 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 <laughs> it's, it's under contract. I, I can tell you that. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but it's been on the contract before. Under, understood. Understood. <laughs> and then given what just happened with the Civic Center. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. it's a process. It, we are somewhere in that process. I'll put okay. it that way. But as we are trying to make sure that developer is, is, is at the table, the relationships I was able to build with Western Merchant Coalition, Western Community Improvement District, who were so instrumental in getting all the community stakeholders together with the, the potential prospective developer, uh, those sorts of things, being on those spaces, I think has helped remarkably in supporting my constituents. I want to continue to build on those relationships to do that. I think one of the first times when we spoke, you you and your wife had just welcomed a little one. How are you balancing doing all that? And just being a dad, Jason, because yeah. you got to be a dad. Well, I joke and say my daughter is the most civically engaged toddler in the city of Atlanta. She goes to MPU meetings. She goes to committee meetings. Well, not committee meetings yet, but she's gone to town halls. She's been at city halls several times, and she'll continue to be in that world as she gets older. So I'm just thankful that she's in our life, and I hope that uh, maybe she'll one day want to serve the city in the same way that I am one day. All right, Jason Dozier representing District 4. Thank you so much for being the first person. You answered. Now, see, tell your fellow council, they don't have to be scared. It was painless. Well, now, that's just Jason's experience. Thank you so much for taking time. We'll Thank check back so in with you. Absolutely. All right. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Some call it a complicated racial history of the indigenous Creek Nation. So here's what we know so far. Two centuries ago, this native tribe both owned slaves and accepted black people as full citizens. And then I'm going to skip ahead here. In the 1970s, revoked the citizenship of black Creeks. Now, in 2018, we found that a group of black Creek Indians, as they described themselves, held a press conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Here's a clip with attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons. At the end of the Civil War and the treaties were being negotiated, there were five individuals who participated in those negotiations and signed that treaty of 1866. One of those individuals was a Creek of African descent or African Creek by the name of Cal Tom, who is my four-time great-grandfather. He signed that treaty, and in that treaty, you have a copy of it, all our media members and anyone else that wants a copy, we'll give it to you. Article 2 of that treaty simply says, or clearly says, that Creeks of African descent shall have and enjoy all the rights and privileges of Native citizens, including an equal interest in the soil and national funds, and the laws of said nation shall be equally binding upon them and give equal protection of all such persons and all others whatsoever of race or color. That is where we are today. And we'll have an update about not only that lawsuit, but so much to this. There's a lot to this story. And it's all explored in detail in a new book, We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity, and Power. And it's by award-winning journalist and professor at Northeastern University with numerous other accolades, Caleb Gale, who joins me now ahead of his author talk next week right here in Atlanta at the Atlanta History Center. Caleb, welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. It means so much. Hey, and fascinating. Hey, it's really fascinating. This book, Caleb, of course, is about history. But, you know, for our listeners who may not have any idea what we're about to talk about, let's inform them. Let's begin, I guess, in the beginning, as far as we can go back. How far back in terms of settling 
on the land in this nation will we find the Creek Nation? Because it's not just one specific tribe, correct? Correct, right? The Creek Nation is a larger federation of many other tribes. Um, and so as far back as perhaps much further back than we actually can probably recall mm -hmm. or even recount, there have been remnants of the Creek Nation or portions of the Creek Nation uh, that we recognize now that existed long ago as tribes uh, long beforehand. And for those that for to have a sense of place, I believe this is primarily when we talk about where they settled, where they live, was the southeastern portion of what now is the United States, Georgia, Alabama, parts of Florida. Correct. A, a great deal of the Creek Nation would have subsumed a great portion of where you are and where others are listening to you from right now. So it's interesting when we talk about, and this is what I've been reading, and, and so far I, mean, I am enjoying the book, it's a complicated racial history of Creek Nation. So I want to back up a little bit too. What led you to not only doing your research and, and detailing this, but the interest in this? Sure. You know, uh, my, my way into the story is probably stranger than most. Right. So my parents are Jamaican. Right. So I'm not I'm not a part of this nation. I, I approach this as a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, but as a kid, we moved from New York, where it seems like is the home of all Jamaican folks when they first come to the country um, and went to Oklahoma for reasons that escaped me even even now. But at any rate, when we came to Oklahoma, I distinctly remember that kids and for your listeners who are, who are listening, I, I'm, I'm a darker skinned black guy. Kids who look just like me whose skin hued a similar color said to me, oh, I got Indian in me. That was the phrase that I heard, I mm -hmm. got Indian. And it was confusing. It was haunting to some extent because if they themselves could say that I got Indian in me while still being fully black, fully one thing and fully something else, perhaps the ways in which we construct and limit and narrow identity parameters, maybe something is wrong with that. And perhaps it requires of me to learn more about the the place that I'm in, the history that has shaped us all. Where did you begin your research? And if you had an opportunity, and I'm sure you did because you're interviewing people, where did you begin with unraveling here sort of the, the Creek Nation? Sure. I mean, I started with the guy that you had uh, playing, right? Uh, it was was watching, was on TulsaWorld.com, uh, the local paper's website, and saw a familiar face. And, and for those who are in Oklahoma, DeMario is the, DeMario Solomon Simmons is not only Cal Tom's four-time great-grandson, he's also kind of the guy you call on when there's been a breach of someone's civil rights, especially on a matter of race. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I started. That's where the story that I initially wrote, and even the way that I initially approached the book was really from the prism of the lawsuit but then expanded to becoming so much more, really more so a work that blended memoir calls to action as well as a hefty amount of history. Let's talk about Kyle. And is it Kyle Tom? Am I saying it correctly? Yes, yes ma'am. Who is he? Who was he? Yeah, so, I mean, aside from being, you know, four-time great-grandfather of Demario Solomon Simmons, he was, um, for, for many who might have observed him less than what he actually was, right? For many who observed him, they assumed that he was nothing but a slave. But in actuality, Cal Tom's ancestry, his, his identity was so much more expansive than that, in part because he was, if you listen to DeMario or any of his other relatives, he was never enslaved. In fact, uh, he was an interpreter for the Creek Nation. Um, he was a black man who not only was the interpreter of the Creek Nation, he also spent time as one of the chiefs within the Creek Nation, who, as DeMario said, was sent after the Civil War to negotiate a peace treaty with the U.S. government that included, among many other things, the emancipation of all black people who were held as slaves, as well as the granting of full citizenship rights, the opportunity for black people to fully participate without limitation in a nation at the very same time in the United States, even after they had supposedly emancipated black people from slavery, still slapped on all black people a badge of slavery that they really could never relinquish and remove themselves from. That's who Cal Tom was. Will you take the listener through if Cal Tom was also, because I've seen some folks say that perhaps he was being used or misled by the government too, in terms of what was going to be promised and sort of his mm. role? 
So I think it's important to take the posture that the U.S. government, right, when they entered into treaties, it was it was almost like a pacifier. There was an assumption that eventually the rug was going to be pulled out from under mm-hmm. them. And if you look at throughout the history of the United States government's interaction with the people who were here first, it's nothing but a trail of broken treaties. So one can try and make the argument that maybe Kowtown was being used, but in actuality, um, anyone who engaged in any sort of treaty discussion with the U.S. government was probably being used Mm -hmm. by that same logic, right? Because the goal was just to figure out a way to pull the rug out of people eventually. Did the Creeks, they own slaves. I want to get to that point. I have, I have listeners who are sending me emails, right? They get to that point, Rosa. Yeah, 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 y'all so pushy. But we're going to get to that. So when we say this Native tribe owned slaves, we're talking enslaved Black Americans or Black... I want to be clear on that. That is sure. what we do know. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the the I think it's important to add some nuance, right? Yeah. So, it, you know, in the United States it was chattel slavery primarily, Mm -hmm. right? I would have lost all of my humanity. You would have lost all of your humanity. We would have just become modes or means of production, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, To produce things at low cost or no cost rather to our owners. And our kids, our kids, kids, our kids, kids, kids would also be slaves. In the Creek Nation was a little different in that even though there are instances of chattel slavery, there are also instances of what was called kinship slavery, which one could find in West Africa, where, yeah, you might live on someone's land, you might work their land, but you also can sit down and break bread with them. You didn't lose your humanity. Um, And on top of that, even if you were a slave, a chattel slave, your child was not going to be a slave. Your child's child was not gonna be a slave slavery wasn't a hereditary badge that you had to wear continuously. And also, just as a really important caveat, the Creek Nation didn't run and hug and embrace slavery, Mm -hmm. right? It was something that was implemented on them through the process of what was was called civilization. It wasn't something that people were running towards. In fact, it was abhorred by the Creek Nation at first. Caleb, and I have a question from a listener who wants to know, was this common among many of the indigenous tribes here that they would have, they, they would enslave black folks? Not all, right? Um, but yeah, some did, right? Um, and it was definitely the case for what at that time was called the five civilized tribes, which are now called like the five nations or the five mm-hmm. tribes, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole. Um, all of them have a very checkered history when it comes to the treatment of black people. Let's talk about this Treaty of 1866. Break this down for our listeners. Sure. So, look, after the Civil War, or even during the Civil War, many of those nations, all of those nations, were put in the unenviable position to sort of choose some sides. And some kind of bear hugged the Confederacy, some bear hugged the Union, but even still, factions within those bear hugged different portions of the of the two sides in the Civil mm-hmm. War. And when the union emerged victorious, they exacted punishment of varying degrees based upon the degree to which people bear hug the Confederacy. And so a small portion of the Creeks did so. And so the United States government in its effort to reconsolidate power after the Civil War essentially said, look, we're we're going to, the the treaties that you thought you had before, we're gonna renegotiate. And it oftentimes led to the loss of power, autonomy and land. But in so doing, it also created a pathway in that very treaty to ensure that Black people who were owned by members of the Creek Nation would have to be, would have to emancipate them, right? And this happened a year after what we now celebrate as Juneteenth. But even so doing, they did something that, something like Juneteenth never provided for, for folks, which was a guarantee of full citizenship rights, which for DeMario's ancestors led to extreme levels of prosperity. Well, let's talk about this, because within the Creek Nation, what was that legislative body like? What were the, was the, whatever they said, that was the, that was the, I hate using the word law, but that, that was it? Kind of what was the structure, structure of the Creek Nation for, to even make this determination and sort of lay down or, or agree to these tenets? Was it one person? How instrumental was this? Right. Was Kyle Tom, Kyle Tom the main one here? Or was it a like a legislative body? Sure, yeah. So you, you have things like the Creek National Council, which 
you know, administered many of the rules and regulations within the nation. But yet and still, um, you know, the United States government also was providing to people, they were holding court oftentimes to dictate what was or wasn't going to happen, right? So you have other characters that are mentioned in the book that provide, you know, a little bit of a smoother access to the possibility for liberation and emancipation for Black people that formerly weren't there. So it wasn't just the Creek Nation, it wasn't just Cal Tom, it was also the concert of those folks working towards this, but then also external forces like the U.S. government requiring some change. So then, Caleb, we, the tenets of this treaty, as you write, the tenets of the treaty remained in effect until 1979, when Cal Tom's blackness injured his descendants' claim to their Creek heritage. Hmm. Dissect that for our listeners. What What's happening here? Yeah, so in order to explain that, you have to kind of go back to the late 1800s mm-hmm. when the, the United States government saw Indian territory, which is now Oklahoma, as an opportunity for a lot of new white settlers. Um, and a guy named Henry Dawes created something called the Dawes Commission. I'm skipping over a lot of history, but I want to make sure your listeners get, sure. get the nuggets here. But essentially, that commission was deputized to try and assimilate, right, uh, the the members of the Creek Nation, Cherokee Nation, and so on. And so what they did was they dictated the terms on which people could be defined as Creek and then allocated land, usually a smaller plot of land in a private way, mm-hmm. which is antithetical to the Creek tradition of communitarian living, communal life. Um, and in so doing, they created two, uh, you know, several different roles or citizenship ledgers, if you will. And a lot of the people who looked like I do or look like you do were placed on what's called the freedmen role. Mm-hmm. And those who didn't were allowed the opportunity to become black. But now to the Creek Nation at that time, it didn't even matter. But in 1979, a guy named Claude Cox, who was then the principal chief of the Creek Nation, heralded this worry that there's a chance that the quote unquote Indian might lose control, which is a way, in a way saying like there's a chance that there is a an opening perhaps for a dilution of our identity through the creation of opportunities for black people in this nation. And that's something, Caleb. We we wow. Is. We we have a whole nother so show about that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So he used the very same tools that Dawes did. And so anyone who was on the Creek Friedman role, right, Demario's family included, all of a sudden became too black to be Creek. Ooh, I wish I had a whole nother half hour with you. Okay, so <laughs> we 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 I played that clip from Demario, and there's been a lawsuit where Black Creek Indians they want, and now it's a Muscogee, if I'm saying it correctly, Creek Nation. They want their citizenship restored in a federal lawsuit. I want to ask you this because does this can this federal lawsuit have any jurisdiction over the Creek Nation? It's a great question. Excellent question. We saw that to be the case over the past couple of years with the McGirt case in which they decided to, um, the Supreme Court decided to re, um, re, infran- re restate that the eastern portion of Oklahoma is in fact, when it comes to certain jurisdictional questions, the Creek Nation. So yes, um, the, the U.S. District Court, the federal court system is the only court system that has any sort of real governance over the state of um, Indian affairs with with the case of with with in this case. So if essentially they couldn't go to like the state supreme court mm-hmm. because they have no jurisdiction, right? This is a question of treaties made between the U.S. government and the Creek Nation, and so the U.S. government at the federal level is the only one who can adjudicate this, either them or the Creek Nation's internal court system. So where are we now? We're just. Sure. It's a great question. Yeah. No, I mean, they were they were essentially dismissed without prejudice, which means that they can reassemble mm-hmm. a case. And, you know, we'll see what ends up happening on that front. But they've also, you know, in partnership with other freedmen from other nations, have really launched an effort, an ongoing effort to try and find if there's a policy remedy. They were testifying before Maxine Waters's commission. They were doing educational conferences, identifying if there are legal remedies. So I would say that the struggle continues. We should note that I believe it's the Cherokee and Seminole freedmen, as they are described, they have won citizenship yes. within their respective tribes. So there is some, if there's some optimism to be had, it's it's based on those two lawsuits. Caleb, what's been the feedback? And have you talked to 
the, the Creek Nation about why they, why even continue this now? Sure, yeah. I mean, when I was doing the reporting and research for the book, there was reticence to speak to me for, for clearly understandable reasons, sure. right? Um, um, reasons that, that I don't even fault them for. Um, but uh, I think like, you know, the, the, the feedback on this has been, you know, resoundingly positive and I'm excited to, to engage with more people. I'm excited to be pushed back. Journalism is but the first draft of history. So I'm so excited to see the drafts that come thereafter. And here we have the intersection of two communities, two populations who have contributed, obviously, to this, the founding of this nation before and then continues. And although some want to put under the umbrella of marginalized and definitely oppressed and, and persecuted peoples, and then the racial politics, if you will, or identity within the intersection of these two groups. It's not the first time we've seen this, but it continues. What's next for you? And are, will you continue with this? Yeah, I mean, what's immediately next for me is is being in Atlanta with you all to, to have this conversation in person. Look at you doing marketing work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> History Center, June 14th. Um, but yeah, the next book actually covers another untold story about Edward McKay called Push Ahead, mm-hmm. um, which, which details the life of one of the most little known, but probably one of the most impactful Black leaders, the first statewide elected politician, Black statewide elected politician in the Old West, who had the interesting and highly problematic idea to try to colonize Indian territory and make it a state for Black people exclusively. Interesting. It's called "We Refuse to Forget: A True Story of A True Story of Black Creeks, American Identity, and Power." It's by journalist, award-winning journalist, author Caleb Gale. Extraordinary part. American history. Caleb, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you next week at the Atlanta History Center. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Rose. Good conversation. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel, who's our engineer for today as well. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. I'd like to hear your thoughts, especially the conversation I just had with Caleb Gale. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And a reminder tonight, there will be this NPR special coverage of the January 6th riots and all that stuff. So listen. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.